0: Do you look forward to reunions with your family? Family get-togethers. They should be times that we all look forward to. Then why do some of you dread those occasions? Let's join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wordson, as he sets the stage for one of the most dramatic family reunions ever. Maybe God wants to use Genesis 45, to help bring your family together again. If we could imagine Jacob and his sons getting together for a Thanksgiving feast. Now in old Israel, they didn't get together on Thursday morning, the last Thursday in November. But in the Old Testament culture, they did get together about three times a year for what would be very much like a Thanksgiving feast. I want you to imagine this family. As this family gets together at the table, dad will hardly even speak because he's so full of grief. This daddy has been crying for the last 20 years because in this family's history, there is a missing spot at the table. Now, some of you can identify with that. And some of you have lost loved ones because of of physical illness and death. But this family has a secret You see, this boy was lost and the daddy thinks that he's lost because of a freak accident of nature. A lion attacked his boy as his boy went up to deliver a message to his brothers and all that the daddy had left of his son was a torn coat that he had given to his his son, his most loved son, to illustrate and to prove his love. So as we look at this Thanksgiving table, Father Jacob Just mention a few things, and Jacob withdraws. He's very quiet. Sometimes tears begin to roll down his cheek. Not exactly the laughter of Aunt Marie at a Thanksgiving table. To make matters worse, as 11 sons gather around the table, they have a very strong difficulty in getting along. Anybody have families like that? It seems any subject you brought up, if Levi brings up what he thinks about a subject... Simeon across the table jumps all over Levi, then Judah jumps in, and then Dan jumps in, and all 11 brothers at the table at what's supposed to be a time of laughter and family warmth, they're fighting. And the conversation is right on the edge of explosion. And it kind of ebbs and flows. The anger will be really strong, and somebody will express very strong emotions, and everybody's quiet. And the whole Thanksgiving feast... It's kind of strange. Now, none of you had Thanksgivings like this, but this is the kind of Thanksgiving that Jacob and his sons would have had. Little did they realize, as Jacob was all depressed, that they were on the verge of the most fantastic family reunion probably that anyone had experienced up to that time. You see, holidays are also the times where the airplanes are jammed the buses are jammed, the trains are jammed, the highways are jammed, the people that run gas stations are thrilled to death because holiday time is there's no place like home, it's a time to travel back and have some really major family reunions. Now, as we picture this family with grieving dad, with angry, disputing sons, from a human standpoint, if I would have gone to them and tell them in just a short few moments, you are going to enter the most fantastic holiday season that anyone has ever imagined. There is going to be laughter and tears of joy. Father Jacob would have told me, Preacher, you are out of your gourd. You are crazy. And that's where some of you are. Because this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 45, there are three people that I want you to see in the story. And I want you to ask yourself, do I fit in the category of one of these three people. We're going to begin with the key hero in our story. He is the abused son. We begin with Joseph. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 45, and just so you have the scene, Joseph, his prime minister of Egypt, he's all dressed up in his Egyptian garb. He is totally unrecognizable to his brothers. He, for several months now, has been having kind of a, a back-and-forth testing time for his brothers. He tested their honesty. He tested their jealousy. And two weeks ago when we left the text, we had the high point of the book of Genesis so far when Judah, the very son that sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, stepped forward and Judah said, I will give my life for the life of my younger brother. So we have this tremendous miracle of reversal as Judah, the brother that sold Joseph into slavery in his 20s, in his 40s, becomes a man that's willing to give his life for his younger brother. Now that's the point where we pick up the story. Right at that climactic moment, you want to picture the Egyptian court, a very regal Joseph before, up in front of his throne. The 11 brothers that don't recognize him, Judah has stepped forth and Judah has passed the test of jealousy. He is no longer jealous of his brother Benjamin. He's no longer angry. In fact, he's a new man. He's a brother that's willing to lay down his very life for his younger brother. Now, at that crucial moment, in the silent of that climactic moment, Joseph had to make a decision. Now let's put ourselves in the mind of Joseph and let's imagine what we might have done. As I look around this room, if you are the abused son, then as you think about your family history during the holidays, there is anger in your life. Because as you think back over your life story, you are the abused member of the family. Maybe there's a son here whose father never looked him in the eye And said, I love you. It sounds like a little thing. For some of you in your families, the most natural thing in the world is for daddy to look at his sons and his daughters almost every day and look at them right in the eye and say, I love you. But some of you are the abused child. Not necessarily physically abused, although there's some of those that are here today some of you are the emotionally abused child. And as you sit there, you are crying in your heart because your mom and your dad never looked at you point blank in the eye and said that they loved you. Maybe you are raised in a home where it's kind of like a coach. It's really interesting to watch coaches in athletics. Many, many coaches in athletics, because their pride, gets very much involved in the game, become very angry as the game proceeds. And you'll watch a child on the soccer field, who makes a miss at the ball. It's a crucial play. The little boy is 10 years old, and he's playing fullback, which is the last line of defense before the goal. And the ball comes towards him. It's an easy kick, and the fullback takes a swing at the ball, and he totally misses it. And it leaves the ball rolling towards the goal. The other team strikers blast by the fullbacks, and the ball is running right to the goal. And you watch the coach. Very next second, the fullback is pulled from the game, and he is given a lecture because he made a mistake. Some of you were raised in homes like that. You're pulled as soon as you make a mistake. It happens in basketball. Every single time you miss the pass, every time you miss the jump shot, you're pulled from the game. That's abuse. And deep in your heart, you become very angry. And it it develops this kind of push-pull thing where when you try so hard in life, man, you work and work and work and work and work. But you can never get what you want. You can never get that arm around your shoulder and someone says you're okay. That's the abused child. Now, Joseph was not abused emotionally by his dad. In fact, he was the daddy's favorite, but he was abused by his brothers. In fact, he was physically abused. If ever there was a man who got a raw deal in life, Joseph got the raw deal. If you're the abused child for today, in your heart you're saying, I got a raw deal in life. I was born into the wrong family, I had the wrong siblings, I have had the wrong circumstances. My life is a big negative. And if ever there was a man that could have said that, it was Joseph. Because Joseph's brothers, when he was 17, took him violently and threw him in a pit. And then when some Ishmaelite traders went by, they hauled him out of the pit and they sold him to the traders. and they went like this, our little brother is gone forever. Now that's abuse. And I don't think there's one of you in this room that could say that I had that kind of violence done to you. I don't know of any of you that have told me a story that you were taken several hundred miles away from your home because your brothers hated you so much they sold you. Now, some of your brothers have said to you, I'd like to sell you. Some of your moms might have even said that, especially on Thanksgiving morning when they're trying to get the turkey ready and you're still under their feet when you're little. But Joseph actually faced that kind of abuse. So if ever there was a man that could have been bitter, could have been negative, it was Joseph. Now I want you to ask yourself the question. as you look back over your family history, are you angry deep in your soul because you're the abused child? Are you bitter? Now look at the chance that Joseph has. Joseph has every abused child's dream the very ones that threw him in the pit are now standing before him in the totally vulnerable position. If Joseph says, you men will be fed to the lions, the servants that are all around him, at the drop of a hat without asking any questions, would seize these brothers and would take them and execute them. Now, isn't that every abused person's dream? You can finally get back. You can roast the person that hurt you. And Joseph can do it. Now, let's look and see how Joseph reacts. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Then, right at the moment when Judah poured out his heart and said that he would take Benjamin's place, right at that moment, Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all of his attendants, he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! I'm sure Joseph's brothers just about had a heart attack. What's going to happen now? So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They had very good reason to be terrified. In light of what I just told you, man, this guy can roll their heads if he he wants to. Look what Joseph says in verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. With fear and trembling, they gathered closer. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Imagine how they felt when he added, you know I'm Joseph. I'm the one that you sold into Egypt the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here But it is God who sent me here. He made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and the ruler of Egypt. Now there's some very important things if you're the angry, abused child that I want you to notice in this passage. Number one, I want you to notice Joseph's freedom to express emotion. You see, when I read this, if we're honest, if we were able to have an open discussion about this, some of the men in this room, as I... I present this vivid picture to you. Here is the ruler of Egypt. Joseph is the ruler of Egypt. He has regal authority. He's the sovereign he's the sovereign king. And all of a sudden, he loses it. All of a sudden, he begins to cry. In fact, he cries so loudly. He cries so loudly that the people that he sent out hear him. And that's how the word goes out all through the court that his long-lost brothers are there. We have trouble with that. We have trouble with the image of this very powerful man who loses it, who begins to cry. In fact, it makes us uncomfortable. Isn't that true in your own family? How many of you are ever right on the verge of really saying something that's true, that really expresses your love, but you don't do it. And the reason you don't do it is because you're afraid you're going to lose it. Anybody like that? You see, our culture trains us to be like that. I'll never forget, right about two days after my mom went home to be with the Lord, About two days after my mom went home to be with the Lord, my dad preached. And my dad preached to the Bible Institute students and he preached a message like he would preach any other time and he never mentioned my mom. Why not? Why not? Because in our culture it would get too close. And we've been taught that you keep yourself strong. In fact, I went to a banquet right about two days after a precious woman in her 50 was was brutally killed in an an auto accident just while she was walking. She was hidden. She was snuffed out. Her brother-in-law was the director of the banquet, and he did a fantastic job, did a tremendous job. And we began the banquet by a tribute to this girl done by Mavis Glass. We went through the whole banquet just normally. But at the very end, at the very end, Bill Glass mentioned and spelled out what had happened, and he began to cry. And when the brother-in-law got up to finish the evening, he lost it. He cried. Now, in our culture, in our culture, they'll say that that's bad. In fact, when I was at seminary, they told us when we were preaching, when you're preaching, be very careful not to cry because you don't want to lose it. You see, that's the way we're trained as Westerners, and that's one of the things that's really wrong with us. It's what's wrong with us sometimes at a family gathering. And I'm really speaking to myself today as well as you because this is something that I wrestle with. I have trouble with Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, bawling his eyes out, crying so loudly, crying so loudly that he, he disturbed people in the other room. You see, we cry. We keep it all in. In fact, to be honest with you, I've heard hardly any of you will. Because we don't do that. You see, we cry alone. We need to learn to cry together. And these are not tears. This case is not a time of crying tears of anger and bitterness. We have those kind of tears. Joseph is crying the tears of love. Joseph is crying the tears of a family that's coming back together. Now, the thing that really intrigues me about Joseph is, how was this guy able to cry and, and just be so full of emotion with tears of love and togetherness instead of anger. And that's a question that a lot of us need the answer to. You see, as you look back over your life, some of you say, man, I just don't understand how God could have let this happen to me. I can't understand why God didn't do something to those brothers. Why didn't God stop them from selling me into Egypt? Why didn't God zap them with lightning when they violently dragged me out of that pit? And sold me. Why didn't he stop it? Why, why, why? Why didn't God use his omnipotence to stop my brothers? That's a question I hear a lot. That's one of the toughest questions. Why didn't God stop my father when he committed incest against me? Why didn't he stop him? Why didn't God stop my brothers and sisters from teasing me constantly? Why didn't God stop the abuse? And what we do is begin, we begin to say in our life, it's God's fault. You see, if God's all-powerful, then he should be able to use his power to keep angry, jealous brothers from selling their brother into slavery. God should be able to stop all that. And the answer to the question is, God could stop all that. God could have reached into Joseph's life when he was 17 and with a lightning bolt from heaven he could have zapped all the brothers and Joseph could have gone back home alone to live with his baby brother Benjamin and they could have lived happily ever after. But that was not the story that God was writing. And that's the tough one for us. But what I want you to learn from the life of Joseph is that somehow, by some miracle, Joseph had a handle on this. You see, through 20 years of being thrown in a pit, then rising to ascendancy in Potiphar's household, and then having the whole thing crash again, and getting thrown into prison, and then being forgotten by the man that he interpreted the dream for, that he thought he would get out, Joseph somehow in 20 years learned a very important question. They intended it for evil. I want you to notice something. Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph who you sold in Egypt. If you're going to stop being angry, if you're going to stop being the abused child, the first thing you need to do is to nail down exactly what was done to you. Because a lot of times we cover it up. A lot of times we say, well, I didn't, it wasn't so bad. I deserved it. I was kind of a bad news brother. Maybe I deserved to be thrown to the pit. That's one of the ways that abused people react. They deny it. They pretend like it didn't happen. In fact, I work with people, they've completely forgotten how they were abused. It was so bad, it was so evil, their mind just blocks it out. And they live many years of their life. Nothing was done to me. And they gather together with their families. Some of you are doing this. You say, why bring it up to mom and dad? Nothing's going to be done with it. But you're never close to them. You just live on the surface with your family because you're still angry. And the only way you're going to work through your anger is to say, I am Joseph who you sold into Egypt. That's the truth. You see, some of you in your families, Thanksgivings are bummer times because there's not truth in your family. It's a sham. You don't have truth around the table. You can't have relationship without the truth. You just play a game. Everybody plays on the surface. Nobody says the truth. As long as you do that, as long as you do that, you just have a formal relationship. And Joseph could have maintained the formal relationship. He could have been Prime Minister of Egypt His brothers could have been right in front of them. He could have maintained his demeanor. He could have said, I will just continue being the prime minister of Egypt. And there would have been no family reunion. And there's not going to be any family reunion in your family until you start telling the truth. Until you start telling the truth. And I start doing that. And that's the hardest thing for us to do, especially with those that we love. And Joseph begins by saying, I am Joseph who you sold into Egypt. So that's the first thing. You've got to face the truth. The next thing is an amazing thing. The next thing is that Joseph had let his anger go. You say, Dave, how in the world did Joseph let his anger go? Because Joseph realized that his loving daddy in heaven was going to win. In fact, Joseph learned an incredible truth. In fact, you're either going to learn this truth as you walk through human life or you're going to get buried by human life. Because as you go through life, you're going to face the kind of Joseph experience. I guarantee you. If you don't learn this lesson, you're going to get more and more bitter, and your Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays are going to be more and more lonely. But Joseph learned something very important. He realized that his brothers were evil. And he realized that God is light. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in him is no darkness at all god hated what his brothers did god was angry with what his brothers did but what his brothers did didn't capture god by surprise there's a tremendous tension you see what the book of genesis is telling us is that the brothers intended it for evil and that was wrong it was culpable it was a criminal act and god was not in that act causing them to do it. They did it. That's the human responsibility. They were guilty, and if we brought them before a court of law and we brought out the case, they should be declared guilty and worthy of punishment. And Joseph knew that. See, Joseph faced the truth. It was evil that you sold me to the pit. But what kept Joseph becoming bitter is Joseph said, you intended it for evil. But you know, the Lord God in history is writing a much bigger story. It's a story that I didn't even know. It's a story that I couldn't even realize. You see, all of a sudden, it's all come together for Joseph. You see, God knew all along the famine was coming. God knew all along that the promised child, the promised children of Israel, who are going to bring the Messiah into the world, their very existence is going to be threatened. You know that God also knew that if they were to stay in Canaan, remember the Dinah episode when Dinah intermarried with Shechem and then the whole village was killed? God knew that the children of Israel lived in Canaan, among the Canaanites, they would be lost forever. They'd never be able to maintain their identity. You see, down in Egypt, Egyptians wouldn't even eat with Israelites. Egyptians wouldn't eat with Shemites. They wouldn't eat with those shepherds. They didn't like the way they wore long beards. They didn't like the long hair that they had. The Egyptians shaved their heads. There was no cultural togetherness between Egyptians and Israelites. And God knew, God knew that if He brought His people from the land of Canaan down into the womb of Egypt, He could generate a nation. You see, little did Joseph know, you see, when Joseph was thrown into the pit, Joseph had no idea that God was getting everything ready for Christmas time. Do you all see how the Bible comes together? Do you see the greatness of the story that God is writing? Put yourself in 17 year old Joseph's shoes. He is crying and weeping in the pit. Then he's hauled out and sold into slavery. He could have been very angry. He could have said, Man, God is blowing it. God's forgotten me. I'm not going to serve him. That's what we've been talking about. That was the temptation. But the real story, the real story that was being written is God was getting things ready for Bethlehem because there was going to be a famine. And God needed to have his man in a foreign country to come up with a wise plan to have the crops ready so that the children, the very sons that had sold their brethren to slavery could be saved. And the very man that sold them to slavery was going to be the father of the Messiah. Judah. And that's the man we met last week that was changed. Now that's a big story. That's a big story. And that's what Joseph is saying. He says you intended it for evil. But notice what he says. He stresses it over and over again. He says, don't be terrified. Look what he says in verse in verse five. God sent me ahead of you. You intended it for evil, but God really sent me ahead of you. You See, God sent me on a mission and got me down here before you all. To protect you. Look at verse 7. God sent me ahead of you to do what? To preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And to save your lives. In the Old Testament, those two words, words, a remnant and to save your lives, are the key words of a prophet like Isaiah. As the history of the Old Testament unfolds, the key words of the prophet is, God is going to save the nations of the world through a remnant, a preserved remnant that will eventually bring the Messiah into the world. You say, well, Dave, what does that have to do with me? It's the only way you're going to be able to be abused and not take it and not say I deserve it and get all twisted out of shape by getting all involved in the evil because you think, well, I deserve to be abused. It's the only way you're going to be able to face abuse and recognize it and say this is evil, it's a terrible thing to abuse a brother. But this is also the only way that you're going to be able to get beyond all of that and be able to forgive. When you can see that God is not overcome by the evil, He never gets involved in the evil, but He uses the evil within His dramatic life plot to bring about the door of salvation. How does that work out in the modern world? How does it work out in the modern world? Chuck Colson is at the epitome of his power in the White House. He is ruling the world, the president's hatchet man, right at the controls of the powerful machine of the most powerful nation on earth. Watergate hits. At first, it's just a little trickle. It looks like something you could just put your finger in the dike and it'll be over just like that. And then Chuck Colson's whole life falls apart. And a lawyer becomes, instead of the accuser before the bar of justice, he becomes the accused before the bar of justice. And he ends up in the pit. And that's the end, right? In fact, he ended up going to prison. He said, I really didn't know anything about the Watergate thing. What I did do was slander my political opponents, which is worse. But I did not know anything. To this day, he says, I did not know about the Watergate thing. So he went to prison for something that he didn't do. That's the end of his life. No. Today, we have almost forgotten about Watergate. When you mention the name Chuck Colson, you think not of Watergate. You think of prison fellowships, a ministry that's around the world reaching prisoners. That's the Joseph story. Johnny Erickson dives off as a marvelous, athletic, beautiful teenager, dives off into a river, and she's a paraplegic just like that. That's a pit. Probably one of the worst pits anybody could ever face. Is that the end of the story for God. People come in and pray for her in the hospital, ask the Lord to heal her. She talks in her books about the anger she would feel at first, a tremendous optimism. Yes, God's going to put my spinal cord back together. I believe that he could do it, but it doesn't happen. And then the anger, the tremendous bitterness. When I mention the word Johnny Erickson today, you don't think of paraplegic. What do you think of? You think of an ambassador, an ambassador of Christ for those with disability. And a whole ministry, a church that in many ways had often forgotten the disabled, has suddenly, there's a champion of the disabled to be the voice of salvation so that churches begin to have walkways where people don't have to haul wheelchairs up five or six stairs. And the church begins to be concerned about the disabled. That's a voice of salvation. That's the Joseph story. Where are you today? Did you have a bad holiday? Because when you think over your, over your family history, you're the abused child. Can you face the truth about that abuse? Can you start to communicate the truth to those that abused you? Joseph said, I am Joseph who you sold into Egypt. But then can you work it through and say, but God wants to use my life story to bring salvation? That God wants to use the negative thing, part of his plan, never involved in that evil, but using it as part of his plan to bring about deliverance on the earth. Can you do that? Now let's look at the guilty brothers. Look how they act. We have the abused brother. Now let's look at the guilty brothers. I want you to notice, first of all, their fear. If you are a guilty person, you're afraid. In fact, there's probably not many of these people here today because they're scared to death to come to church. So you need to learn about them because you need to learn that they're out there. They might be your boss at work. Every time you bring something up, they just blow their cork at you. They're just angry. You know some people... When you think about them, the basic thing you think about them is anger. They're uptight. Every time. They're always fighting with everybody. That's the way these brothers are. In fact, right here in in Genesis 45, it says, first of all, the brothers were terrified. I would have been too. They've been found out. And I want you all to realize, if you are the guilty brother, God's going to find us out. You see, there's no pretend. You can't cover it up. And that's what these brothers thought. For over 20 years, they covered up everything. They told their dad a lie. They probably never mentioned it among one another. But all of a sudden, God begins to work in an unbelievably skillful way to face them with the truth. And they are terrified. When you think about God, are you afraid? You know what causes us to be afraid? is we're afraid God's going to find out something about us. Something that we already know about. Something that we know isn't right. Something that we know is wrong in our life, but we're bearing it, we're covering it, and we won't open up. That'll really help you understand why some of your loved ones don't want to worship with you. Because a church and reading the Bible and praying and learning about a God of grace is a tremendous challenge to get you to open up and face the truth about yourself. When you're guilty, you don't want to do that. But don't you thank God for the Joseph story because he keeps reaching down in there. He keeps pulling away at those guilty brothers. And now he's got them. The very man that they abused is standing before them in the position of authority and says, You are the man. You sold me into Egypt. And they were terrified. He says, Come on over here. We just read that. Come on over here. Get close to me. I can see him. They're like this. Yeah. Kind of like getting close to an electric chair. Notice at the very end of the chapter, It says right at the end of the chapter, um, in verse 24, Then his brothers went on their way, and as they were leaving, he said to them, Now don't quarrel on the way. This is after they've already had this glorious reunion and everything else. Joseph is still saying, man, don't quarrel on the way. Why? When you are the guilty brother, you tend to be angry with everybody. And you're always blaming everyone else. It's always everyone else's fault. So when you run into someone like this in your life, they're angry, it's always someone else's fault. They hit the fan at the drop of a hat. They're full of fear. They're afraid to do things. Then you're probably dealing with the guilty brothers. The guilty brothers. Now, why are these brothers so afraid? Why did it take them so long to go back to Egypt? Can somebody tell me? Why did it take these brothers so long to get up the courage... To go back to Egypt. And God had to get them incredibly hungry before they would go and see, see Joseph. Why was that? They were scared. The guilty brother is always scared. You know why there's a lot of people that aren't here today? Out there? There's a lot of people that when they were little kids, they were right here with you. Right in church, learning the Bible, studying. But they've gotten away from it. And you can't figure out, man, you try to get them and say, man, I'd really like you to come, I really want you to come, but they won't come. You know why? Because they're afraid. You know why? Because they know God. They know God as a God of righteousness, and they know that God is a God of holiness. They know that God is a great king, and they know what their heart is like. You know what we, how we feel when we're guilty? You see, what this text wants to do is it wants to take away all the veneer and expose our hearts. And the guilty brother is always afraid to come before the prime minister. I mean, who wants to go before someone that if they found out the truth about, it, about us, would zap us? And we would be lost forever. And that's the way the brothers felt. They didn't want to go back to Egypt because the prime minister, the man in the position of authority, the sovereign king, was going to kill them. Now, were they right in that judgment? In other words, did the brothers have to get on the verge of starvation up in Canaan before they came back? Was that true? Did the prime minister really want to kill him? All the external evidence said, yes, he does. The external evidence said this prime minister is trying to get us. What was the truth? And oh, I want you to get this today. Oh, I want you to get it. Because it's one of Satan's biggest lies. Because Joseph in this case is a mirror image of the heavenly daddy. And you know, a whole lot of us, you know what we have trouble with? We think God if he knows everything about us. If God were to look right into the very core of our soul and he were to go over all of our family history, all of us think we would hear condemned, condemned, condemned. That's what Satan tells us. And it's true. God does. His wrath is poured out against all unrighteousness and all evil of men. And God is like that. But you know, the prime minister of all the universe is just like Joseph. The very one that we're afraid of is the one that wants to break down and cry. Did you ever stop and think about that? You see, this Joseph story is just an Old Testament twist on probably the most powerful story that Jesus ever told, the story of the prodigal boy that went away from home. The prodigal boy, as he sat in the pig slop, felt that his dad was mean and vindictive. He had abused his dad. He took his inheritance. He said to his dad before he left, I just wish you were dead. Give me the inheritance now. But finally in the pig slop, he woke up and said, well, at least my dad is fair. And he went back home. But you know, the son was totally wrong about the heart of his dad. That boy in the pig slop was wrong about the heart of his dad. He thought his dad would want him back as a servant. He thought his dad would send him way out to the bunkhouse. And that's where some of us are. You're convinced that God is really against you. He's for the person sitting next to you. He's for some of the good people that are here. Some of you say, man, I don't know why God doesn't do for me what he does for so-and-so sitting right next to me. And basically, if, if I ask you to open up this morning and say, David, to be honest with you, I think God is the prime minister of the world, but I think he's after my guts. And that's where you're wrong. Just like Joseph's brothers were wrong. Joseph's brothers were incredibly wrong. The man they were afraid of was their savior. The man they were afraid to face was the only man that could save them. And that's where some of you are. You're afraid to come out into the open before the sovereign of the universe because you're afraid he's going to judge you. And I want to share something with you. Just like Joseph of old, Jesus has already let his anger go. God the Father has already let his anger go. On the cross of Calvary, God poured out all of his anger against sin upon his son. He poured out all of that justice and all of that holiness, and it was good, and it was righteous, and it was pure, and God let that righteous, angry judgment just flow out upon his son And 2 Corinthians 5 tells us today that today we are ministers of reconciliation. That's what this story is about, reconciliation. I want to ask you, have you ever come before God and said, here I am, God, this is my past. Here's where I abused my brothers and sisters. Here's where I did what was wrong. You already know it. Here's where I was immoral. Here's where I stole on my income tax. Here's where I was very angry with my wife. Where here is where I lost my temper with my kids and I hit them. God, here I am. You already know it. And you say, God, I'm afraid. Because I know I deserve judgment. You know what the Joseph story is telling you? It says that just like in the story of, of the prodigal, the real God, the God of heaven and earth, invisibly wraps his arms of love around you and says, I've been waiting all along for you to come back home. Why have you been hungry so long? Why did you stay in the land of starvation? I'm your savior, not your executioner. So we have the abused son who now becomes the forgiving savior who meets the need of the guilty brother. There's only one guy left. That's the grieving dad. The grieving dad, these caravans, he's looking out over down towards Egypt like a daddy would waiting for his sons to come back. And all of a sudden, He sees all kinds of stuff. I mean, wagon after wagon. These two-wheeled carts that the Egyptians used. Man, they are loaded. It looks like Macy's department store coming across from Gaza. I mean, it's incredible. There's beautiful clothing. Man, you know, there's some beautiful dresses and everything. It's just unbelievable. And then his sons arrive and says, Dad, you're not gonna believe this. You're not gonna believe this. Joseph is alive. You know what Jacob said? Now we have the grieving dad. It's what all grieving dads do. They go, I don't believe. It. And it says that his heart was still like stone. It said his heart was still like stone. You need to be patient. You need to be patient with grieving dead. It's really hard for grieving death. And man, this is a long story. Can you imagine <laughs> the talk that Judah and Jacob must have had that night? You know, the words, Joseph is alive. Down in Egypt, prime minister. There's a big jump from Jacob sending little Joseph as a teenager to check up on his brothers to being in Egypt as a prime minister. How did Joseph get from there point A to point B? Judah had a lot of explaining to do. But I love dear old Jacob. Look at verse 27. So they went up, they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's ruler of Egypt. Jacob was stunned. It says in the Hebrew, his heart stopped. He did not believe them, but when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts, isn't that a good Jew for a good Jewish daddy? When he saw the carts, that did it. Joseph had sent to carry him back. The spirit of their father revived, and Israel said, now look at this, I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. I want to say to all of you that are grieving during the holiday, that can be your verse. I am convinced, I am convinced that my loved one is still alive. You see, that's what brought renewed hope into Jacob's heart. Jacob thought his loved one was dead, but he wasn't. That's what we learned a couple weeks ago. We emphasized it again. It says, Dear old Jacob said, I thought he was dead, but he's alive. The Savior comes and says that our loved one, if we believe, he that liveth and believeth in him shall never die. Then Jacob, in verse chapter 46, So Israel set out with all that he was his, and he reached Beersheba. He offered sacrifices to God, the God of his father, and God spoke to Israel in a vision. And Jacob said, Here I am. Verse 3 of chapter 46, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. Go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And then Jacob left Beersheba, And Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children, their wives, and their carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. And they all went down to Egypt with their livestock. And then it gives you the names of all 70 persons that went down. And what's chapter 46 telling us? It's saying that the dear old patriarch, now we're back. We've come through a whole Joseph story. And it looked like the God of Abraham had made the promise to make a great nation. It looked like the God of Isaac who made the promise that he would make of them a great nation. It looked like the promise was dead. It looked like it died in a pit in Palestine. And what chapter 46 is telling us is that the Lord God of heaven appears to Jacob again. And now he's the patriarch again. And God says, you're going to go down into Egypt. And in the womb of Egypt, I'm going to make a great nation. In Genesis chapter 10, there's a table of the nations, and they are grouped in families of 70. There are 70 nations. The new children of Adam produce 70 nations that go out through all the world. You know what the writer of Genesis is telling us in chapter 46? He's saying God is creating the new humanity. There's going to be 70 foundational people in the new people of God, the people of Israel, the people that are going to ultimately bring a blessing to all the nations. And so Jacob walks down into Egypt, and in just a few chapters we're down in Egypt, and the book of Exodus begins. And the promise God made to Jacob, you'll become a mighty nation. Exodus chapter 1 says that the Israelites are multiplying like the stars of heaven, so much so that the Pharaoh, 400 years later after Joseph, is threatened. That's how the Bible holds together. That's how the story continues and how it grows. I want to ask you a question today. Are you depressed? Is the smile canned? Maybe you're the abused son. Can you follow Joseph's example and face the hurt and pour it out and start to tell the truth? and realize that God wants to write a story in your life, a story of salvation, a story of hope? Are you the guilty brothers? As you look back over your life, do you think of some things you've done within your family that have really hurt? Maybe you're right in the middle of a family problem. Can you realize that God is really for them? He's not against them. He's coming with grace, not with judgment. Are you the grieving daddy? Can you believe that your son is still alive? That God, even in death, is not totally defeated. really want to challenge you. The old, this is a story of grace in the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus on Calvary is coming to all of us. And one of the things I want you to get, we can be thankful that Jesus, the New Testament Joseph, is the prime minister of all the universe and knows everything about me. He knows everything I've ever done. He knows everything you've ever done. There's no secret with him, so there's no reason not to be totally honest with him. And that prime minister of the universe comes with me. I don't need to be afraid of him because he's the one that died for me. You'll be born again if you'll believe that. A person that's born again is a person that realizes that Jesus, the sovereign, the prime minister of the universe, is not against them. He's for them. And he gave his life to forgive them, and he took his life back again so he can come into our life today. We want you to be thankful that Christ is in your heart, not struggling in the pits.